This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening, you're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. This is a film criticism show. My name's Thomas Caldwell. Uh, tonight I'm co-hosting with Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. And before we go any further, I think we should acknowledge that Plato's Cave was represented at the Community Cup yesterday by Josh Nelson, who I believe was fantastic. Oh. Is that true? Were you fantastic, Josh? Uh, it was a team effort. <laughs> and uh, it's a team effort that I'm feeling on every inch of my body right now, which sounds a little dubious, but I am incredibly sore. Although I have to say, having played in three Community Cups now for a draw, a loss and a win, the body doesn't hurt anywhere near so much uh, after a win as it does for a loss. So yes, I'm in high spirits still. That was such a good win. Uh, unexpected. I mean, they called themselves the Rock Dogs, but we were the underdogs. <laughs> or the underhurts, as we're now being referred to, which is wonderful. Yeah, damn straight. Congratulations. Good on you. Did you, did you get any particular injury? Because you're notorious for, <laughs> for hurting yourself when you do anything vaguely healthy. It's more like which injury didn't I get this year. No, I, um, I think I've pulled up just uh, just some muscle muscular soreness. I think is the worst. After I did two knees last year, I think I've um, managed to escape pretty well this year. So, well, you've done your duty. You're now welcome just to sit back and watch films and talk about them <laughs> for a change. <laughs> On tonight's show, uh, we're going to look at the new film by the prolific documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney. Now, we've covered several of Gibney's films on the Cave over the years. Last year, we looked at We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks, and the Armstrong Live. And this is the latest one to get a theatrical release in Australia. It's going clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief. And as the title suggests, it's a critical examination of the Church of Scientology. And judging from the way the Church has responded, it seems the film has hit quite a nerve. Less controversial is the new film by Pixar Animation Studios, Inside Out. It's directed by uh, Pete Docter, who also directed Monsters, Inc. and Up. And he's been a key figure at Pixar, dating all the way back to the original Toy Story film. Inside Out is arguably Pixar's boldest and most conceptually complex film to date. And then at the end of the show, we're going to take a look at a recent DVD re-release of the 1958 film The Defiant Ones. We've looked at a couple of re-releases of films directed by Stanley Kramer last year. We looked at Inherent, uh, Inherit the Wind and Judgment at Nuremberg. And like those ones, The Defiant Ones contains Kramer's trademark focus on important social issues, in this case, race and racism in America. But first, let's, uh, let's tread carefully through the minefield that he's discussing, going clear, Scientology and the prison of belief. Yeah, this is, uh, this is going to be a ride. So, uh, Alex Gibney's latest documentary uh, broaches a, a subject matter that I think all of us out there have some awareness of, the, the Church of Scientology, uh, especially famous for its celebrity representatives, most famously John Travolta and Tom Cruise, uh, both of whom declined to be interviewed for this film. That's not to say they don't appear within it. Now, this is inspired by a book by author Lawrence Wright, He's the author of Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood and the Prison of Belief. And that Hollywood is actually missing from the title of this film, but it still still goes there. It has to go there. We wouldn't even probably know much about Scientology if it weren't for its high-profile Hollywood representatives. Though those of us who are frequenters of MIF and go past the forum often might remember that back in the day, just opposite the forum, used to be the local Scientology hangout. Uh, this film begins with... Um, 
images of a meter going back and forth. Uh, in voiceover, we hear a variety of voices, uh, questions and responses, personality testing questions. The so Scientologists were always very well known for their auditing process, which even to um, the novices, the lay people, outsiders, we, we knew it was something to do with being monitored for emotional responses to things. This film, um, is, it's really an expose on just what it is that the Scientologists were interested in learning about people and how they were interested in generating income from people's uh, emotional welfare issues, you might say. And some of the uh, more high-profile Scientologists um, are profiled directly in this film and are talking heads, including film, in fact, Oscar winner, isn't he, Paul Haggis, a Scientologist for 35 years who signed up with his wife way back in the day. We also meet uh, an actor of... uh, Jason Baghair, he wasn't actually familiar to me, but um, he'd been with the church for 13 years. Uh, Spanky Taylor, a PR uh, superstar, 17 years with the church. She joined up after friends had told her that they had superpowers. Uh, Spanky recruited Priscilla Presley and, very notably, John Travolta to the church. And uh, we're treated to some very rare footage of Travolta, including an an Band-Aid commercial. And there's a little bit here that's really fascinating, uh, where you learn about how Travolta, once very shy and diffident, found his confident self and rose up through Welcome Back, Cotter, and through up, 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 up the Hollywood uh, career um, charts until, you know, bottoming out again until, I suppose, Tarantino. That's not mentioned. Anyway, we meet... um, David Miscavige uh, at uh, some footage from International Association of Scientologists Gala, and we get the, the very much, it's made clear that he's the current face of Scientology. But the, the, the film sort of abandons him for a while to give us a full backgrounding in L. Ron Hubbard, the man without whom there would be no church. Um, and that is a very disputed term in its own right, as we, we learn at great length. There's various uh, long-time Scientologists who've since uh, extricated themselves uh, often painfully from the church speak at, at some length as to the the tactics they employed uh, to protect Scientology's reputation uh, and, and their own personal um, persecution, allegedly, at the hands of the church. There is, uh, for me, the most extraordinary stuff in this. I already knew a fair bit about the, the church and some of the, um, the beliefs and the, the system that whereby you uh, as you become more and more enlightened, you are um, exposed to more and more of the church's teachings, all of them uh, created by Elron Hubbard way back in the day. And it bears mentioning immediately that Hubbard holds a Guinness Book of Records record for being the most prolific author of all time. He was a hugely prolific author of pulp fiction of a sci-fi-ish nature. And uh, a lot of that is evidence in this whole mythos that he has created. We hear a lot of his wife's uh, thoughts on this, at the time, nascent religion that Hubbard was building and noting uh, how much in common his fiction writing had with the the beliefs he was exposing people, just in a gentle drip feed, but an expensive gentle drip feed through Scientology. And we learn all about just how the auditing process happens, what the e-meter actually is, uh, and various terms, some of which might be quite clear. Clear itself is a key term. It is when you've reached a certain state of enlightenment where I believe the two differing parts of the mind um, are, are reconciled. One, notionally, is a perfect computer. We all of us have a perfect computer in our heads. And the other half of our mind, all our neuroses abide, and that's what Scientology is meant to assist us with dealing with. And, look, this is 
uh, scary, scary stuff. I mean, I find um, much of what I have learnt in this documentary chilling, not so much the teachings of Scientology, which I had some awareness of, some of that through South Park way back in the day. Um, as that episode of South Park reminded us all too clearly, it kept flashing up, as I recall, at the bottom of the screen, this is what Scientologists believe. Uh, it is extraordinary stuff, what um, is taught and believed. And, that would um, be, just sorry to interrupt, that yeah. would be the, um, the South Park episode that... Uh, forced Isaac Hayes to depart to the depart, creative, yes, creative another team. famous Scientologist, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think this is a very laudable documentary and I think generally very even-handed. It goes to great pains to provide evidence on screen for claims that are made. It did rub me up the wrong way in one respect, which is that there is some stock footage incorporated into the film that isn't really necessary and in fact in one case actually a little misleading in that uh, we, we hear about one of Hubbard's cronies early on, Jack Parsons, a Alistair Crowley inspired chemical, chemical engineer involved in experimental rocket research and some occult rituals that they take part in which perhaps informed Hubbard and when he was beginning to he was writing Dianetics and leading to Scientology and we see footage of Marjorie Cameron uh, a woman who Parsons hung out with and uh, they show footage from Kenneth Anger's inauguration of the Pleasure Dome uh, by what, as the voiceover explains about occult rituals they participated in. And that, that film is about occult rituals, but it is not an occult ritual. But uh, aside from that, um, I, I found this fascinating and chilling, and I locked all the doors afterwards. Yes, I had a, a, a similar response. I realised how little I knew about Scientology, and look, uh, defenders of the church will say I still know very little about it because they're not happy with this film at all. But I, I thought it was a sort of New Age kind of movement that was just very crafty in the way they marketed themselves but um some of the stuff this this film is is suggesting makes them out to be a, a lot more frightening um and and very skillful at integrating themselves into um into yeah mainstream religion in, into hollywood i mean they're brilliant at using hollywood to spread the word and it's been very calculated and carefully uh carefully constructed that way um i i, I try to look at a bit, a bit about the background of this because this film has provoked a, quite a strong reaction from scientologists and i must admit i always whenever i hear about religions no matter what the religion is or even political movements when they get critiqued and the response is intimidation or or harassment or something that could resemble intimidation and harassment i always think what is the foundation worth of your religion or ideology then if you are so rattled by somebody critiquing or having a go that you respond in such a disproportionate way and some of the responses to this film from the church that i've heard about i can't prove that they're true but i've heard about it from a lot of sources seems to um suggest that what the film is saying is quite on on the money and look the film is very convincing and alex gibney is a highly reputable filmmaker who's done these exposés of numerous organizations i mean his film on the catholic church mia maxima culpa was was extraordinary and really opened up the doors to just how far back sexual abuse was happening in the Catholic Church. I mean, he's examined the dark soul of American corporations in films like District 9 and... Uh, not District 9. <laughs> Client 9. Client 9. Yeah. Um, the Elliot Spitzer story and, um, and the Enron film and the US government. I mean, 
way before we had d- debates about the use of torture in, in, in warfare, before that debate became mainstream, Gibney made Taxi to the Dark Side, an Academy Award winning film, which really blew the lid off this, this myth that torture was an effective device. So Gibney is a good filmmaker. Um, and he did seek out a lot of people from Scient- the Scientology Church to, to speak about their religion. They did not provide, and again, this is from my research, this is what I've read, they didn't provide anybody he requested but just spokespeople who he was not interested in because he, he knew they would just, um, and this is quite in Gibney, they would just give the party line, which he wasn't interested in. Um, this is the first time I think I've ever reviewed a documentary where I've been treading so carefully about what we say because this is the response it provokes, and we see this in the film. Um, I'm really glad that they went back and showed us a little bit about who Ron Hubbard was and gave us an idea about what kind of man he was. Um, there's some very serious allegations in this film that he was quite dem- domestically violent, he wasn't a nice man, he was psychologically unstable, and he was basically trying to invent, uh, according to the film, um, a new version of psychiatry that he wanted to have accepted by the mainstream. And when mainstream psychiatry said, this is crazy stuff, that's when he adopted the anti-psychiatry line. So it's sort of, well, you won't accept me, so I'm going to go the opposite direction and, and say, you're nothing but rubbish dumb people. I mean, it it's kind of boils down to that. I was also fascinated by how much of this film I resonated in Paul Thomas Anderson's film The Master, which was very, very much distanced itself from Scientology and said, this has nothing to do with Scientology. This isn't based on anything that happened. Philip Seymour Hoffman's character has nothing to do with uh, Hubbard. Um, and I, I suspect maybe that wasn't the, the case, but they had to be careful because, as this film suggests, people who speak out about the church get harassed and intimidated. Um, and just, just finally, talking about the way they, they sort of penetrated Hollywood, they, they provide two kind of t- case studies, I suppose, in this film for the two methods they use, one with Cruz, one with Travolta. And the suggestion... And the film is careful not to say anything too explicitly either, but the suggestion is Travolta toes the party line now out of actually a little bit of fear and concern that stuff will be taken away from him and the film suggests that Cruz Cruz toes the party line because he gets whatever he wants. He has been given everything on a plate and um, he has been built up to believe he is something of a god himself. These are some of the ideas that the film is, is suggesting which I found quite compelling. I should just also quickly say documentaries are not meant to be objective. They are subjective works. This is not news reporting. This is not journalism. This is subjective. It's a point of view and the same goes for film criticism. We are not objective participants in this. We are subjective. Everything I've said tonight is subjective in my opinion. That's actually a perfect segue because I I found a quote by Gibney um, in my research for the the film and the response to it in which Gibney actually says, objectivity is dead. There's no such thing as objectivity when you're making a film. A film can't be objective. And I think that's that's his own defence. He's providing a point of view, a perspective through his research, through evidence gleaned from the testimonials of people who were in the church. There's no dispute about the role that these people had in the church. We see them as spokespeople for the church. We see them performing their duties, you know, for the church in the in the film itself and talking about that and reflecting upon their experiences within the church. But I guess what I found fascinating, and I think this is a really accomplished documentary, I think this is an incredibly dense documentary, I think it covers a lot of ground, not just as a, a personal study of L. Ron Hubbard and his backstory, but 
broadening its its exploration to issues of religion and celebrity and corporatization and the American government and religion. I mean, there's a whole aspect here about the IRS and the fact that the Church of Scientology now gets off everything sort of tax tax free, and now all of L. Ron Hubbard's books, even his science fiction works, as you know, the, you mentioned before, the pulp fiction works are now classified as um, religious text and therefore aren't subject to to taxation law and so on. Some really kind of remarkable facts that come out in this documentary. But what I thought was fascinating about this and how it taps into, I guess, Gibney's preoccupations in other films, some of which you've already mentioned, is his recurrent theme about institutions, uh, lies and ideology. And I think it's so interesting because some of the ones you've mentioned, including uh, the Armstrong lie, Mia Maxima Culpa, We Still secrets the wikileaks doco taxi to the dark side uh, client nine and enron are all either about institutions themselves and the kind of the ideology within that or these strange charismatic figures and how they represent you know contrasting ideologies or values or have this sort of strange charisma and how that's used to pervert themselves or other people around them like i guess lance armstrong is a perfect example and this documentary has both of those things it has that strange charismatic figurehead in the l ron hubbard and also this exploration of an institution and potential the, the structuring of ideology and lies and values within that And i thought that was this really is um uh, ripe fodder for that type of uh, gibney exploration that we've seen so many in so many other um, uh, of his of his films. I also think it's interesting, just from a personal point of view, and what I didn't really realise, I guess, about Scientology, uh, is the links between this and psychoanalysis. And I can get, I guess, I understand why people, and this is gleaned from, I guess, the testimonials of people like Paul Haggis, why they would be um, seduced, if you want to call it that, into the church, because as they exp- explain, many of them, they were in emotionally raw times, they were suffering, and they said their interest in the church was because it offered a kind of therapeutic solution to their personal problems. And it is. It's like a talking cure. And one of the fascinating aspects of this is in one of the um, archival images or interviews we see with L. Ron Hubbard, and someone puts it to him that it is it is a form of psychiatry, what he does. He rejects it wholeheartedly and gets quite upset that someone would dare um, compare the work that he does in Scientology to, say, Freud and Freudian psychoanalysis, even though they seem patently identical, with the exception of the presence of the E-meter, uh, in terms of a therapeutic approach and it's only when we start to introduce lord xenu and paul haggis's reaction when he starts to talk about this is really one of the high points of the film really starts to go okay it's this is this has ceased to become a psychoanalytic process yeah just a couple of uh, more points for me i think the it's really fascinating learning that there was no succession plan after hubbard and so hubbard appears as quite uh daffy avuncular character almost he's definitely quite charismatic but he's there's something a, a, a little off seeming um but he, he, he seems uh warm affable even but then his uh successor we, we learn that david miscavige more or less assumed the mantle of his successor and is molding scientology i guess it must be really into it's still hubbard's image but it's also his own flavor of things and miscavige uh, genuinely scares me i have to say and um uh, there's one other thing I was going to... No, actually, that's enough to wind up but, on. But, he's, he's, but the uh, film does suggest that the, the, the church took a, a different turn when Miss Cavage took over. Well, a lot more... Uh, a very uh, It changed. An expansive property portfolio while its membership yeah. is dropping, so it's finding other means of uh, getting by. 
But I think also, yeah, absolutely, and that's that's, that's a huge important part to to acknowledge that they're very big property owners. But I think also in terms of attitude and, and maybe just yeah the way they handled situations. Actually, the one last point I was going to make just that issue of actually of the sexuality of its most famous members, and for years it's been heavily rumoured that Travolta and Cruz are closeted, and it's just interesting hearing how Paul Haggis says how much he was menaced through his daughters. He's got. Uh, queer daughters and that the church uh, was not at all pleased about that and we see some uh, some texts to that effect and we, I just find that intriguing there's more there's I think a sequel a few years from now is on the cards we talked we've been talking about going clear Scientology in the prison of belief you've heard our subjective opinions which are which are not facts they're just our subjective <laughs> opinions you can go along to see the film itself and make up your own mind and and maybe you want to do some more reading to help with your own thought processes but uh that's it from us right now you're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne Australia. Uh, Inside Out is the 15th Pixar Animation Studios film. It's, as I said at the start of the show, it's directed by uh, our key creative, Pete uh, Doctor, whose first major job with the company was being part of the team that developed the concept to the original Toy Story. And yes, he developed Monsters, Inc. and Up. And look, this is such a wonderful end of a dry spell for Pixar. There, it wasn't so many years ago they had Ratatouille, then Wally, then Up, and Toy Story 3. I mean, these are some of the greatest animation films of all time. And then it went really downhill with Cars 2, Brave, and Monsters University, which I think are disappointing at best. Um, The story of Inside Out is about Riley. She's an 11-year-old who's recently moved from Minnesota um, to San Francisco and leaving a world of comfort and security to um, insecurity and the unfamiliar. And it reminded me, actually, of many Studio Ghibli films in that the experience of a child moving house reflects the emotional changes as they start to enter the world of adulthood. Now, the film is mostly set within the headquarters of Riley's mind, where we have five emotions who run her mind to ensure that she remains safe and to help her for memories and the emotions are joy sadness fear disgust and anger and they all have a practical purpose uh, except for sadness and i think a big part of the film's message or perhaps mystery is identifying what is the point of sadness now of course things in the headquarters go wrong and this puts riley's personality at risk and throughout the film we get an adventure in the physicalized space of riley's mind now, as a few people have pointed out, this concept isn't completely original. There was a 1990s television show called Herman's Head. Um, there's a segment in Woody Allen's 1972 film, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Too Afraid to Ask, a, seg- a segment called What Happens During Ejaculation, where Allen plays one of the sperm. Um, the, the moments of Inside Out even reminded me a little of a benevolent version of The Truman Show, in that we have someone operating this, this, this person. But look, this film is is incredibly sophisticated in how it represents the key personality traits. Concepts such as core memories, abstract thinking, where the film goes all (laughs) Eastern European animation. It's hilarious. How it represents dreaming, fading memories, imagination, and why those annoying advertising jingles get stuck (laughs) in your mind. 
This is a really beautifully animated film. Uh, so much thought has gone into how all these emotional characters w- w- would would behave, as well as all the other kind of figures who pop up, pop up in Riley's mind. Uh, look, typical of Pixar at its best, this, this is not just a series of throwaway gags. All the jokes are constructed to sort of the main theme and narrative. Look, similar to, to Toy Story 3, it taps into that very universal experience of growing up and discovering that the way you think and relate to the world changes. And because of those changes, there's a degree of transformation but also loss. Inside Out makes us aware of that loss and it's connected to letting go of things we cherished as children. It's almost cruel how heartbreaking this can be. But it's also quite a moving film. It celebrates the complex dynamics of how emotions uh, work within us um, and that we do get more complex as we grow up and discover that sometimes it's actually okay to feel sad. Oh, hell yes. And sad I got during this film in bucket loads. Um... This is a pretty remarkable film, and yeah, I want to echo what you said in terms of um, this being a, a really prominent return to form for, for Pixar, given the last three outings you mentioned. And I, I think I've come to the realisation that I think Pixar, when they're on song and when they're at their best, is when the scripts are not for children really at all. These are, I think these are films for adults. I think this is an adult film. I mean, the fact that it's dealing with issues of, you know, there's so many Freudian jokes in here about psychoanalysis. There's some very canny uh, political jokes in here. There's one that's not really giving too much away when um, uh, we see um, two boxes labelled opinions <laughs> and facts that unfortunately get muddled up or their contents get muddled up and someone says, oh no, the, the facts and opinions are getting mixed up and someone says, oh, that happens all the time nowadays. You know, this is a clever a film and those jokes would be completely lost on a four-year-old in the audience and in saying that this is still a film that i think has appealed to, to children because it manages to work on those two levels the script is very much adult it taps into something that's recognizable for adults in their own childhood in a really poignant way it's not talking down to its audience but i think the the basic structure of the film a kind of coming of age adventure you know so many of these sets in these films take place in in toy worlds and amusement park sort of settings which is you know utterly playful and recognizable for children as well and i think that's where this film is so genuine and why i I, you know i at least connected with it on such a kind of heartfelt level is because it's not talking down to its audience you know it is so so poignant and incredibly funny as well this is one of the most consistently funny films i've seen this year and it's it's not hurt at all by the fact that the voice cast is, is pretty extraordinary i mean i think amy poehler as joy is is literally a joy she's a, she's such a wonderful presence as a, as a voice cast and also that the rest of the cast is comprised a lot of uh, actors who are in the u.s version of the office we have rashida jones uh, mindy kaling phyllis smith phyllis smith who even looks like the character of sadness she plays is so fantastic i just made the connection isn't she great right down yeah. to the, gla- the glasses yeah. she wears the same glasses she wears um in the office and saturday night live uh, uh, bill Hader is here as well i mean you know again we're having worked with Polar before. Yeah, this is it's, it's such a, a a clever film in in so many ways, and it's a film that I you know I, I can't wait to rewatch actually already. Yeah, me too. And it's one of those films where the kids are going to love it and wonder why, if, if ever they were able to get their eyes off the screen, why mum and dad are actually in tears beside them. <laughs> Hugging uh, them and saying, yeah, don't yeah. grow up, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I saw this with a couple of kids and, and, and with uh, their father and immediately afterwards actually saw uh, a different approach to parenting be adopted based on uh, discussions around who's in charge in your head right now? Is it the little red man, the little angry man? <laughs> and I found that immediately fascinating and I I think that's uh, I would not at all be surprised if this film winds up on some sort of child psychologist's uh, toolkit it's it's 
actually that clever. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot there that is there as jokes for us, we grown-ups, but there's plenty there, I think, that kids will grasp too. But, yes, these jokes about uh, abstract thought, that whole sequence is jaw-droppingly funny, <laughs> clever, everything. Uh, is it... You know, a predictable, perhaps, deja vu joke, but um, it's all coming back to me now. Yeah, the gags about the jingle and the way they get stuck get stuck in your head is is terrifically clever. Mm. Um, it, it's I, I found a few people out there weren't that excited weirdly about this film ahead of time, and I've had a sense that the trailer may have misrepresented a bit and presented as some sort of weird battle of the sexes thing by showing little clips of. Oh, that was my thought. Yeah, 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 the, yeah. yeah the the little people inside different people's heads, and 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 that's not what the film's about at all. It really is very specifically about an eleven-year-old girl, and there are a few other gags thrown in there, especially in a really fantastic gag reel at the end after you've wept yourself silly. <laughs> just it's uh, there is a wonderfully. wonderfully Wonderfully funny uh, closing gag reel. So, look, I, I just think this is such a stellar return to form. It's a really rich film, and I can't wait to return to it. And don't I don't doubt that I'll pick up on more gags that I didn't quite grasp first time round. I think so. It's so impressive. It really is up there with with the best of Pixar's Pixar's work. And I think in terms of the emotional punch it packs, it's right, it's up there with Toy Story three because it, it's just that, that very universal theme that the core tragedy of being human is we, we as we get older we lose some of our imagination. We lose what is it called? Goofballville starts to, to, to crumble. This kind of land, this space in our mind where we're just silly and have fun. Um, I think what you're saying also about the way audiences are going to receive it is spot on. I mean, I think this is written for adults, making sure it's also highly accessible for children. Doesn't mean children won't enjoy it. In fact, I think children are going to love this film because, and I, I suspect kids are going to kind of. They're going to get the fundamental idea in this film as well. I don't think a few people have suggested it's too complex, it's too the, the concept's too radical for children. I reckon they're going to get it. I, I think kids are going to identify with, the, with, with, with this idea. And I think what you've said about how the film might, in fact, even be used in, in the future as sort of a teaching learning tool, I think you're onto something. Well, especially where sadness is concerned yeah. and actual yep. depression, uh, because Riley's in a very bad place at yep. from quite a bit of this film, in fact. And I think. That this does really provide a, a useful toolkit for looking at what, what's going on there. And, and well, I could well imagine this facilitating conversations between children and uh, older folk in future, absolutely. Yeah, and also, you know, is my emotion of anger, disgust or fear appropriate right now? Uh, maybe it's not, but they, these are appropriate emotions. And the film sells this to us so convincingly. I mean, this is the best explanation of why we get sad i ever seen in popular culture. I was convinced. And in terms of memory... I I think just something that, mm. that struck me there when you were talking about this and the way the film conceptualises memory through these these wonderful kind of glowing baubles and, and divides them between memories that are easily disposable and kind of get shipped off at the end of each sort of working day and core memories and the disappearance of core memories str- reminded me instantly of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and this idea of what would happen if we lost those memories and what is the importance and do they need to be happy memories or can they be sad memories as well and in fact what is the relationship between happiness or joy and, and sadness within those individual memories. This is, I, I think, the wonder of this film is it works on those two levels. It's not a case of this joke's for the adult and that joke's for the kids. Mm. I think each joke, even even in the way in which the setup for the joke works, children recognise punchlines, like they're savvy viewers, they recognise the jokes being made, even if they don't get the same content of the joke that an adult does. I think that's something that Pixar does 
perhaps better than well, most animation studios, um, particularly with the, the visual style of this film. Yeah, I think this is, this is really an extraordinary film. And I think uh, looking at Pete Docter, I think he's become perhaps even more important a creative figure than John Lasseter within the, the Pixar studio. This wasn't his project at the outset either, I don't believe. I think he was brought in a little, uh, not late in the piece, but uh, I think it was already underway and no one quite knew what to do with it. They had the ideas, but it wasn't quite moulded into shape. And you, you can't tell. This film just seems extremely well conceived. The whole psychic landscape is, is brilliantly conceived, I think. It's, uh, I think it's uh, the best film I've, of theirs I've seen since at least um, Toy Story 3. It's yeah, well, well easily, easily, and, yeah. And Pete Docter is um, he's writing the Toy Story 4 sequel, so I think it's in safe hands on the basis of, of this film. Well, Inside Out, I mean, sometimes films get near-universal praise like this one, and there's a reason for that. And I went in thinking, I'm not going to cry, this film's not going to get to me. And it got, there's at least two occasions where it got me hard, and it was a really enjoyable, refreshing cry, because sometimes being sad is important. You're listening to Plato's Cave, here on 3 Triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. The Defiant Ones. A film directed by Stanley Kramer in 1958. And as you mentioned at the beginning of this show, Thomas, this is the third uh, home entertainment re-release of Stanley Kramer's that we've covered in the last year or so. The other two being uh, Inherit the Wind, 1960, which dealt with issues of creationism versus evolution, and particularly the role of religion and the law in an American context, and Judgment at Nuremberg, the film he made the year following Inherit the Wind in 1961, which deals with a number of other issues, uh, including fascism and morality in the context of post-World War II politics. And Stanley Kramer, if you weren't aware already, is very much a social issues director. And The Defiant Ones is is, um, no difference in that regard. In fact, this is a film that deals with, well, among various other issues, but most prominently perhaps issues of racism. The film is structured around two male leads, Sidney Poitier, who plays Cullen, and Tony Curtis, who is referred to as Joker. These are two men who are handcuffed to each other in the back of a prison trans sport van which crashes at the beginning of the film and they make a break for it and the film is structured around their attempts to achieve freedom in the in the midst of what you'd call a fairly acute racial conflict between the two of them that have no choice but to confront their racial biases particularly tony curtis's opinion of african-americans in fact the film makes it very obvious that this film is going to be about racism when just prior to the crash an argument breaks out in the back of the van between the two men on the basis of Joker referring to Cullen as a nigger. And this is the the moment that causes or sparks the crash, which leads me to think for 1958, this is a film that is so far ahead of its time, and it was something that I was reminded of time and time again. This is a film that is dealing with issues of race within America at a time when, you know, this is this is even pre the sort of the 60s race rights. This is very much kind of fanning the flames, I think you could say, and that's what, I guess, what makes this film such a, an exciting and daring watch, too, in the context of even contemporary politics. So race is really, I guess, one of the key things, but the film is, is a genre piece. You know, in many ways, it's a two guys on the run from the law, and in quite a pointed manner, as you mentioned, Thomas, this is a film that makes the audience aware that it's dealing with not just racism in America, but racism in the South. And early on in the film, they're given a choice. Do we head to the South, to the nearest town, where we can get tools to kind of unhook ourselves, or do we head north? And of course, Cullen says, as a black man, there's no way you're dragging me south. We are going north. 
So again, I think this is a film that's very much where the setting is is crucial, particularly the deeper and deeper they get into the the jungles and swamps of the southern kind of marshland area. But I guess I found even perhaps even more fascinating than the racial um, exploration in this film is the way in which it deals with sexuality. And there's homoeroticism here in its bucket loads. Very early on, in fact, the I think um, Joker, the, the Curtis character, makes reference to the fact that they aren't they ain't married, and he says this is a marriage, but it ain't no honeymoon because they're tied and and the their handcuffs become the kind of substitute wedding rings. And boy, does the film kind of explore these ideas of sexuality and homoeroticism to the point where at a, at a really interesting crucial juncture later in the film, the Curtis character is almost given the opportunity to choose between the possibility of a heterosexual family life or reuniting with the Sidney Poitier character. And I think that's what makes this film, among various other aspects, particularly the visual elements, which I'm sure we'll talk about in just a moment, such a, a thrilling film. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know why I keep getting surprised at how great Stanley Kramer's films are, because they've all proven to be extraordinarily good films. And, um, and I think that the, the key thing to point out is, is the richness of the way they explore these topics. This is not simply a case of racism is bad. People yeah. who say racist things are bad people. It really goes into a lot of depth, as we saw with some of those other films of his we've we've discussed, and as we saw with you know in later films of his. I mean, guess who's coming to dinner is a, a really interesting discussion on race because you've got a sort of supposedly open-minded, progressive, middle-class white family who have to confront the fact that they're still very uncomfortable that their daughter might be marrying a black man, again, with Sidney Poitier in the lead. And what I liked about The Defiant Ones is it felt like it could be something made today in terms of its conversation about what we now call white privilege. There is a great few scenes where the Tony Curtis character is basically saying, what have you got to complain about? I've, I was dealt a rough deck as well. You know, I've been given nothing. I've struggled. I've... I've had a hard time. What makes you so special? And throughout the film, he realises that despite all the hardships he's had, it's nothing compared to what it's like as a black person in America. And as you said, yeah, I mean, the, the, the use of, of the, the racial slur at the start was really confronting. Um, I do wonder if that's a word that's actually increased in potency over time as well, that maybe we find it more shocking now than audiences did then. Um, I, I don't know, but I still really was quite surprised to hear a word like that used in a mainstream film. Um, but more interestingly, I think, just on that, is that mm. they actually discuss the, the usage of it. It's not just in there as a sort of slur. It's not just a sort of a byproduct yeah. of the era in a way, like a Huckleberry Finn type of term. It's there in a, in a way where they actually say, I'm going to talk to you about what this term means to, to me, uh, like the Poitier character and the Curtis character has to confront, what does it mean to say the word nigger or to call a black man boy, which he does repeatedly in the film? The boy conversation is amazing. And again, it feels like some of the conversations you see playing out in Facebook comments with you know clueless people saying, "Why can't I use these words? I want to use whatever words I like." And people saying, "Because this word hurts me, and there's a history of this word hurting me." It, in fact, it's a little sad to think that they had conversations that sophisticated in 1958, and there are still scores of people who just don't get it. Yeah, this film was four years before the Gregory Peck version of *To Kill a Mockingbird*. I mean. That's incredibly ahead of its time. And I think it was recognised at the time. It was nominated for a bunch of awards. It won, I think, a Screenplay Academy Award. Um, but also the, the, the look of the film. It's just... There's a real modern approach. This whole era of filmmaking, the late 50s, early 60s, is a weird time because it's not quite classic Hollywood, but it doesn't quite have that real radicalism of new Hollywood either. But, but you've got people like Stanley Kramer and Otto Preminger as well doing really interesting social issues film. And you look at this era and it's 
also proof that you can do social issue films and they are blockbusters. I could imagine this film being remade today very easily. I could imagine Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino shackled to one another and having those very discussions, <laughs> and that would be quite... I, I, would, pay to see that I would pay to see that. Can we, yeah. get, can we get a Kickstarter? Yeah, that sure. it, it is an extraordinarily vital film. Uh, I wasn't, this really wasn't on my radar at all, and I was very taken by it from the get-go. It's, uh, well, it's extraordinary location cinematography. It's really vibrant and vital and uh, have that real sense of place and space. Uh, it, it seems a very real environment they're inhabiting and running through and actually uh, imperiled in. There, there's some extraordinary stunt work, I suppose you, you could call it, really. It's, uh, the pair of them shackled to one another, especially trying to extricate themselves, having taken a plunge uh, of a sort together to evade capture. Um, you know, it's clear from the outset what's what's the you know the main dynamic in the film. The two of them jostling for uh, to, you know, having to learn to cooperate. There's a nice lesson there for all the kids. Cooperation uh, is is how we get ahead. But also, yeah, the, the race card is played from the very start of the film to the very end. But then there are some other dramas just off on the side which are interesting too, as various representatives of the law. Um, I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah, yeah. battle amongst <clears throat> themselves for the correct approach to take and. Not just the law, but also sort of folk law, you might say, uh, an angry mob which assembles, just like it does on The Simpsons, more or less, in, an, in a flash, uh, wanting some good old country justice to be dispensed. Uh, wonderful, all of the moments in the film where people encounter this pair of runaways and are baffled by just the very notion of a, a black man and a white man being shackled together. How could this even come to pass? And uh, it's, it, look, it's, it's a really super film which resonates in many other ways too. I... Uh, one of Tony Curtis's other famous roles is, of course, as a, a, a crim on the lamb, and we think of, well, at least a musician on the lamb, some like it hot. <laughs> Interesting there, he assumes drag here in one moment, uh, sort of against his will, he actually assumes blackface, but it's really yeah. a fascinating moment, such a very loaded and actually homoerotic moment too. And one other film that this uh, reminded me of, which came quite a bit later, aside from, as you mentioned, Thomas Kramer's later, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, this bizarre 1972 horror film, The Thing with Two Heads, in which Ray Milland gets a black man's head grafted onto him. He's this lunatic racist who's about to die and has to... Somehow the only means of keeping him alive is to graft uh, a man's head to him, and it has to be a black man's head, of course. And hilarity ensues, and no small amount of uh, racial antagonisms and look what a double bill though would make and and just to come back to the issue of the the townsfolk and the potential lynching the cameo by lon cheney which was yes. out of the blue and wasn't was sort of fairly unexpected yes as the well i won't give away what his role in, in the uh, the film is but yeah he apprehends them at one point which i think is a kind of a nice touch and i almost didn't recognize him as you know the man of a thousand faces um but yeah in terms of the police aspect and the the references to dogs and animals and wild beasts throughout this film i mean there's a there's a very pointed remark early on where the cops are assembling their own sort of version of the lynch mob who have all the dogs and they refer to the the prisoners as dogs or say this is just like hunting rabbits and the the kind of the sheriff who's clearly cast in the sort of the mold of the liberal fairly even mind one says this is nothing like hunting rabbits these are these are men and the other men from the south just don't get it for them these two criminals particularly the 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 black man is is no no you know he's he's a sport this is a sport hunt and if we have to let our dobermans go and hunt these guys down you know with clear, I mean, the, the references to Dobermans and, and lynching there is pretty p- 
pointed, and I think for an audience in the 50s, that it's making some pretty stark statements. Yeah, it's very potent. And Cerise, you mentioned that the scene before of blackface, but that's that's the black man controlling it, yeah. the blackface, saying here's a practical application for that. It's such a loaded, yeah. loaded symbol. Um, the, the, the actor who played the, the sheriff, uh, Theodore Bickel, um, he's also got a strong background as a folk singer as well. He was wonderful. Like, he's sort of the voice of reason within the sheriff's department and kind of this this new form of, I, I guess, progressiveness. Interestingly, an ex-lawyer. And I think um, Kramer seems to like lawyers because lawyers hmm. are often... Well, certain types of lawyers, social justice lawyers, are the heroes of his courtroom dramas, for sure. Um, but, yeah, there's this wonderful character who just uses tries to be calm and tries to constantly remind people, I know we've got a job here, but these are human beings. Like They're still humans, and we need to treat them with, with some respect and, and dignity, even though it's our job to catch them and put them back in prison. And just a beautiful performance. Again, it's not the kind of performance you associate with this era where the, the, I suppose there's still echoes from the classic Hollywood era where everyone plays it very big in sort of big caricatures, which I absolutely love, but it's, it's extraordinary seeing a film like this where the acting feels so naturalistic. Uh, including Tony Curtis. I, and this is the most dislikable I've ever seen mm. Tony Curtis play as well, which is which is quite something. Yeah, I mean, just to come back to that point about the courtroom dramas, I think thinking back to those early, our reviews of, the, of Inherit the Wind and Judgment at Nuremberg, we said even though they were courtroom dramas and potentially quite stayed visually, that I think from memory we both we all said that visually they were so dynamic. There was so, there was a kind of a richness in terms of his visual language that he used to kind of create a sense of energy within that, and and you see the way in which he constructs scenes like that one you mentioned earlier, Cerise, where they have to kind of climb out of the clay pit, and again the sequence involving the train that's they are remarkably well edited constructed dramatic and visual sequences and speaking of the good sheriff if that's what he was really intriguingly early on especially he's lit in chiaroscuro lighting part black part white make of that what you will (laughs) oh it's stylistically it's It's very clever and it is stunningly he knows exactly how to move a camera to change the psychological dimensions of a shot um the defiant ones people it's a good one stanley kramer I don't think he gets the, the recognition. I mean, he, he, people regard him as a great filmmaker, but he's sort of not one of those names that gets mentioned. But I think he's really up there with the best. We're going to have to wind up tonight's episode of Plato's Cave. We spoke about Going at Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief. That's on limited release through Madman Entertainment. Inside Out is on wide release through Walt Disney Studios. And The Defiant Ones is available on DVD through Shock Entertainment. You've been with myself, Thomas, along with Josh and Cerise. Um, Alexandra should join us again next week. We'll be back then. We're going to look at the Thomas Hardy literary adaptation, Far From the Matting Crowd, plus a bunch of other stuff. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.